Morning, church. Good to be with you. Hey, you. Okay. <laughs> you guys leave me hanging up here? All right. It's going to be one of these mornings. It's going to be back together after our uh, all-church retreat last weekend. Had a great time over Labor Day, spending some good quality time together. Almost, uh, we had a great turnout. I think almost everyone from the church was able to make it uh, just for a day or for the, for the camping trip. And uh, yeah, look forward to that next summer. Summer 2023. Here it comes. It'll probably be here pretty quick because this year just flew by. I feel like every year I get older, the years just go by faster. They do. Yeah. <laughs> Phil? <laughs> yeah. Long days and short years, I've heard it said as you get older. <clears throat> uh, this morning we're continuing in our study of Second Samuel. So if you don't already have your Bibles open, let me invite you to open them with me to 2 Samuel chapter 10. Samuel is one unified story that's broken into two parts, and that was simply because of scroll length, but it's one big unified story, and it tells the story of Israel's first kings, a guy named Saul and a guy named David. And Samuel has probably some of the most famous stories in the Bible, right, with David and Goliath, and one that's coming up quickly, David and Bathsheba, which we'll look at next week, 2 Samuel 11. But as we read through the story of Samuel, it's a historical narrative, which means it's telling the story of the first kings and battles and about the nation of Israel. And as we study the Bible, it's not simply like we're studying a historical text, right? I mean, what's the difference between studying 2 Samuel and a book on the ancient Greeks and their history? We learn some things. Maybe there's some principles there that we can apply to our life, right? And the answer is, hopefully there's a big difference, right? <laughs> the scriptures are living and active, we think. They do something. So as a church, we want to be shaped by them. We want to be shaped by the scriptures. We want to be moved by them. We want to be transformed by them. We read the Bible. We study the Bible because we believe the Bible isn't just for boring religious people. The Bible isn't just for book nerds, people who like a lot of words in a book. The Bible has almost 800,000 words. That's like all of Harry Potter, I think, is over a million. If you were to read all of Harry Potter, it's a lot of words in the Bible. Right? Hunger Games is like 300,000, something like that. The Bible has a lot of words in it. We print it on really thin pages so it fits in a little. You know, if the Bible was on a, it'd be a huge book. The Bible is not just for people who like to read a lot of words. We don't view the Bible like any other book where we just read it once. Like, I mean, I've, I've never really heard, I don't have a friend, I'd, I'd never had someone just kind of meditate on the Deathly Hallows, paragraph two, verse seven. It really spoke to them. Maybe there's some out there, I don't know them. Or Lord of the Rings, you know, they just, they memorize certain parts of Lord of the Rings because it, it's so transformative to their life. Haven't seen that either although I'd say there's a clear winner between those two. <clears throat> we read the scriptures because we want to be shaped by them. We, we think the scriptures, they, they form virtue in us. And the scriptures, they reveal themselves as uh, elevating the glory of Jesus. So we think the Bible is a big story about Jesus. And our hope in preaching the Bible is to get a better understanding of who Jesus is through all of scripture. You guys with me? The so scriptures say, Beholding the glory of God, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. 
So our hope as we study the scriptures together is that we would see Jesus together and become more like him as we sit under the word. You guys with me? Amen. Amen. You're with me, Thomas. We think the scriptures are a testimony to Jesus and the grace of God in Christ. Therefore, we want to explore that grace of God in in all of the storyline of the scripture. So when we read through 2 Samuel, we're not simply reading through historical narrative. We're reading the story that in some way gives us a better understanding of who Jesus is, what God has done for us in Christ. And as we behold him, we become more like him. You, You become like what you behold. You're controlled by what you seek. I'm convinced. So if what you ultimately care about is image, you will be controlled by the upholding of this image. You will lie at times. You'll do things that you wouldn't normally do to uphold this image. If you ultimately care about comfort, (laughs) you will try to distance yourself from things, people, circumstances that cause discomfort. And you, you might be kind of miserable because this life is full of uncomfortable things. You can't escape it. I haven't, well, you, you can try. But I haven't found a, a healthy solution to try to escape <laughs> as, as much as I can get sucked into YouTube. Man. If you ultimately care about having a good time, you, you might not do things that are ultimately good for you because you're, you might be short-sighted. You might be so self-centered and self-focused that you've built a life around yourself which leads to misery and isolation. If we become like what we behold, if we are controlled by what we seek, then my aim each week, our aim as a church is to center and focus on Jesus Christ. All right. Now that I've preached my first sermon, shall we look at 2 Samuel? Whether we were reading 2 Samuel, Judges, Genesis, Jonah, we want to look at Jesus, and I want to show you Jesus. So let's see how we can see the good news of Jesus in 2 Samuel 10. Previous story, 2 Samuel 9, we saw the kindness of King David. David asks, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to? And we were asking ourselves, what would it look like if we did that? We woke up in the morning, God, is there someone that you want me to show the kindness of God to? What a cool thought, isn't it? And we saw that the kindness of God is promise keeping, it's initiating, it's he's taking the initiative, he's taking the lead. It's welcoming, he's bringing in, and it's generous. So he remembers this covenant with Saul's family, and there's a grandson of Saul, a son of Jonathan, a guy named Mephibosheth. It's a sweet name. Maybe they called him Mephibi as a nickname, <laughs> or Chef, I don't know. I could, Mephibi sounds kind of sweet. I feel like I'd call him Mephibi if he was my friend. But he's seeking after this descendant of Mephibosheth, of Jonathan, of Saul, and he welcomes him to his table. He says, you're going to eat at my table every single day. He restores the land of his grandfather, Saul. He generously provides for him. And we saw, my hope was in seeing that, that that was to give us a picture of the kindness of Jesus, right? The kindness of God, that God is a promise-keeping God. The promise he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David is fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus is the kind of king that initiates. He goes after his people. He seeks and saves the lost, and he invites them to enjoy table fellowship with him every single day. And he restores them and gives them new life. So that was the kindness of David and how it was received. And now we're going we're to find a story in 2 Samuel 10 of David's trying to show kindness, and someone rejects it. 
and then a war starts and uh, doesn't go well. Well, at least for the, the people who David was trying to show kindness to, if they would have received it, it seems like this, the war would have been avoidable. Anyways, so starts with 2 Samuel 10, verse 1. It starts with the transition of power, the leadership of this Ammonite nation. The king dies. His son, Hanan, takes his place, reigns in the kingdom. Uh, Ammonite was a kingdom just, if you're looking at the map of Israel, it's just east, right? There's the waters over here, and the kingdom of Ammon is over here, neighboring nation. And uh, David says in verse 2, I will deal loyally. Some translations say kindly. It's that same word, said. I will show kindly with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally or kindly with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. Right? So David wants to show kindness. He wants to show loyalty to this nation. His, his dad has just died. Hanan's dad just died. And he wants to comfort him. And uh, maybe Nahash and, and David had some sort of good relationship as David was fleeing from uh, his own nation as Saul was trying to kill him. Maybe they had a, he was, Nahash had shown him some sort of kindness and David wanted to return that, that same kindness. Maybe there was some sort of peace treaty before the Ammonites and the Israelites after Saul had defeated them. We're not exactly told what returning this or what the kind of loyalty Nahash showed to David was, but the point is David wants to show loyalty, wants to show kindness to this family. But the princes of the Ammonites, the rulers, the kind of advisors of the king, they assume intentions. And this is what they say. Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he's honoring your father? Right? Yes, that's what he's doing, right? We know this. But they say, has not David sent his servants to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So they start whispering in his ear. David, really send comforters to honor your father? That's, that's not what he would do. He came to overthrow it. He came to spy it out. Right, there's a lot of problems when we assume the intentions of others, isn't there? <laughs> oh, man. You want to have relational conflict? Assume bad intentions. Works every time. You want to start conflict? Just start doing that. One of the more common problems I've seen in counseling, particularly in regards to interpersonal relationships or marriage relationships, when couples don't trust each other, when they assume bad intentions, wow. That creates a mess. I may or may not know that firsthand too, right? <laughs> we perceive intended slights, so we start to almost begin to look for ways to be offended. People have hurt us in the past, so it's just a matter of time before someone hurts me again. Therefore, I'm automatically going to assume you're evil out of self-protection. Can you guys relate to that? Trauma, abuse that isn't healed, right? We'll feel better if we're distant than we're disappointed, so I'm just going to keep others at arm's length. Don't ask me how I know that. The wrong kinds of friends also have influence in the wrong ways to look at people and view things in a way that's not true. It's evil. I can relate to this experience of Hanan. Do you think that's why he really came, David came? He didn't come to honor your father. He's really come to manipulate and spy out and eventually overthrow you. John Woodhouse, in his commentary, says, distrust prevents us from seeing good intentions for what they are. We are prone to suspicion. Sometimes, of course, suspicion is justified, but when it makes us incapable of seeing the goodness of someone else's words, actions, or intentions, much harm is caused. Here, this common human failing of distrust was far more serious still. They were despising the kindness of God's king. 
David wants to show some kindness. He gets rejected. And not only do they reject this kindness, but they humiliate these servants. Verse 4. So Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half the beard of each, and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Now, we don't really even have to be in the same society as this, in the same kind of honor and shame cultures as this, to know that's humiliating. You shave off half my beard, I'm looking really weird. That's not a fashion statement. You cut off my clothes at my hips, or we have now two, two sets of clothing instead of just the one that they would wear. Everything's exposed, right? That's not a good look. <laughs> he humiliates them. This kind of humiliation would be similar to like a public flogging. This is serious stuff. And especially for the nation of Israel, they had rules about how are they to trim their beards. That's how much they cared about beards. So to, to mess with a man's beard was shameful. I say amen. Yes. <laughs> Cuts their garments in the middle. They would be, their private parts would be exposed. So when David is told them and he, he sends to meet them, the men are greatly ashamed. It says they're greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Now, ironically, in, in my studies this week, I, I discovered that Hanan means gracious. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? It's anything but gracious. He responds to the grace of David with humiliation and shame. So David says, hey, guys, you have already been shamed enough. I mean, half your beard's gone. It's not like if someone shaved half my beard, I could just shave their other half off and then just let it all grow at the same time. Like the Israelites weren't supposed to touch their beards. So they needed to wait for that thing to grow until it didn't look weird. So said, remain in Jericho. You don't need to have further public humiliation and then return when your beard looks better. That's Daniel's translation of that. <clears throat> remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. This is a very disgraceful act, not only to shave their beard, but to expose them. It was intended to make them look ridiculous. So David says, remain in Jericho. This Jericho is like 15 miles of Jerusalem. Stay there. I don't want any more shame to be brought on you unnecessarily. It doesn't need to happen. And the Ammonites know, like, okay, we've become a stench to the people. They know what they're doing. This is like, this is starting a war kind of act. So they prepare for war and they hire themselves mercenaries, other soldiers. They hire there about 30,000 troops from the Syrians. Now some Bible translations use the word Aram or Arameans. That's just another way of translating that word Syrian. This is the same language where we get Aramaic from, the Aramean language. Aramaic. <laughs> Aramean region. They speak Aramaic. And David hears that they've gathered this army and he sends his, his army out to, make, to have war. And their strategy was, the Ammonite and the Syrian strategy was, we're going to attack them from both sides. So we're going to corner them. We've got two armies. We're going to divide and conquer. We're going to fight this war on two fronts. So after David sends Joab out and Joab realizes this, he, he makes a risky call. He divides his army in two. He doesn't have two armies to do this with. He divides his armies in two. He sends the best men of Israel to fight against the Syrians. So what Joab concludes, the Syrians are the greatest threat. I'm going to send my best men in the open country to fight against the Syrians. And the other men I'm going to entrust to my brother, Abishai. And they're going to fight against the Ammonites. That's the entrance of the gate. 
entrance of the gate is most likely referring to the gate of the city of Rabbah, which was the capital of Ammon. So it'd be like modern day Jordan today. But the, he divides his army in two. And he says in verse 11, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you come help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. So this is their strategy. They're coming up both fronts. Therefore, let's divide and, and try to withstand this attack. And he says in verse 12, be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Job is taking a risk here. And if they lost, the, city, the cities of God, the nation of Israel is going to be overrun. This is a key moment in the history of Israel. A lot is on the line here. The Ammonites and Syrians have teamed together. If they win, there's no line of defense for Jerusalem. The city's going down. And Job says, be of good courage, be strong. And some translations say, let us fight bravely or let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and the cities of God. Or let us prove ourselves strong for our people and for the cities of God. And I have in my mind, as, as Joab is making this speech, he's calling his troops to be courageous, be full of courage, be strong. Do this for our people and for the cities of God. Those kind of epic speeches in in battle movies, you know what I'm talking about? Like right before a key big battle scene in a movie, sometimes there's this guy who gives up and gives a compelling speech, kind of rah, rah, it's pumping up the troops. Sometimes it gets me jacked too, these speeches. Some of the most popular, of course, Mel Gibson and Braveheart. You guys know the movie? You know the speech? I am, I'm not gonna give the accent. I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? Will you fight? I fight and you may die. Run and you will live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from tomorrow, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that we may take our lives. They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom, right? You guys know, it, it just gets you going. What about Denzel Washington and Remember the Titans? What about Aragorn and Return of the King? I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but not, it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down, but it is not this day. This day we fight, right? It's, man, I'm just, I can, I can hear him say it in the movie. What about Coach Bombay and the Mighty Ducks? There's more your speed, right? <laughs> what about General Maximus and the Gladiator? Maybe your more speed is, what about Neville Longbottom in the Deathly Hallows, right? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. See those smiles? Joab says, be courageous and be of good courage and may the Lord do what is good in his eyes. Or in other words, the Lord's will be done. Courage can be defined as the ability to do something that frightens. Courage is the mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, our difficulty. Courage has been described many ways. These are some of my favorite quotes on courage. Mark Twain says, courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, 
not the absence of fear. Aristotle says, you will never do anything in this world without courage. It is the greatest quality of the mind next to honor. Plato said, courage is knowing what not to fear. I like that one. One of my favorites is Ernest Hemingway. He says, courage is grace under pressure. There's a story that's kind of circulated among uh, the ancient kind of monastic community. And there's a story of a vicious warlord who would intimidate villages with his evil. He would send entire populations of these villages into the hills to hide in the caves, and they would just wait for this ruler to die. And one day, the, the warlord, he entered a village, and he asked, you know, I presume all the people have fled and, and hidden, and they've gone to the caves by this time. And they said, well, there's one old monk who refused to flee. And the warlord was beside himself. And he says, bring him to me immediately. And when they dragged the old monk into the square before him, the, the ruler shouted at him and said, do you know who I am? I am he who can run you through with a sword and never even bat an eye. And this is what the old monk said. Do you know who I am? I am he who can let me, who you can let me run through with a sword and never bat an eye. <laughs> I'm not afraid to die. You think that's the worst thing you can take from me? This is... A story of courage. I'm not afraid of death. And Job calls his men to be strong, to be courageous, and to trust that the Lord's will will be done. The Lord will do, do what is good in his eyes. And he calls the men to have this great kind of resolve, this great strength. But he's also simultaneously calling them to trust in the providence of God. This cool dynamic, I think, of, of what Job is getting at here, of this idea of human effort and faith. It's like they're not opposed, right? Be courageous and have faith. Faith in God propels action. Trust in Christ empowers obedience, doesn't it? So Joab and all the people, verse 13, who were with him, drew near to battle the Syrians. And the Syrians fled before him. What a lame battle, Right? And the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled. They fled. Like, oh, shoot, the army that we hired, these 30,000 troops, they're gone. What are we going to do? They flee. And Job returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. The Ammonites are done. They fled. The Syrians have fled. But interestingly enough, after the Syrians flee, they gather again together and they almost kind of recoup. It's like, we can't go out like this, guys. Come on, let's put up a fight. And David couldn't ignore the second threat. So verse 17, this is when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with them. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who entered who were servants of Hadadezer, saw that they had been defeated by Israel. They made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians really got a poor deal out of this. <laughs> they were hired by the Ammonites to go with them into battle. They flee, Ammonites flee, and now they're subject to David, probably paying tribute, what they weren't doing before. And it says there, well, yeah, the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. <laughs> Wouldn't you be? That's how it turned out. After this whooping, the Syrians are going to think twice about any kind of offer from Ammon to go to war against Israel. And now they've become subject to King David. 
Now, if the Bible isn't a unified story that points to Jesus, if we read this story in such a way that we don't, we're not trying to see Jesus or learn from the good news of Jesus, you could walk away from this story thinking, man, I got to be courageous. I want to be like Joab with the speech, right? Be more like Joab, guys. Do it. Stop being afraid. Just be courageous. Done. End of sermon. Have a good week. Stop being afraid. Would you guys just stop it? Have you seen that, that parody video of the therapist where the, 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 the client is talking with this therapist about the different problems that he has and the therapist just says, well, have you, just stop it. I mean, that's his advice. Just stop it. <laughs> I need to, okay, from the story, I, I need to just leave the outcome up to God, right? That's, that's, that's a good thing. I need to be courageous. That's a good thing. I need to have faith like that. I'm, I shouldn't be afraid to do hard things. Against any enemy, any, any threat, any situation, I just need to be courageous. That's a good thing. But what is fueling that courage? What's at the heart of that courage? Self mustering up. All right, I just got to listen to Braveheart, right? And then I'll be, man, I'll just be jacked. I got to start my day every day with speeches. Just be jacked for the day. I'm going to conquer everything. I just need, if, if I just have the right motivational, what is it called? Motivational speech, is that it? When you listen to, is that, it? Is that all it is? Thanks, Eli. Okay, just the right motivational speech. I'll be ready to conquer the day. I think there's a better way to inspire courage and faith and humility and dependence and trust in God's providence. If courage is knowing what not to be afraid of, there's a better way to inspire courage other than just trying to appeal at <laughs> you bad fearful people. Gah! And I think that is looking at what Jesus has done. You guys with me? Look at the enemy. Look at the situation. Look at the threat. Look at the strength that came from his resolve. Jesus was a king and he came to show kindness to his enemies. And his enemies, instead of receiving his kindness... They didn't shave off half his beard, but they stripped him naked. They mocked him. They humiliated him publicly. The cross was the worst kind of torture for anyone. Like the worst criminals in the empire of Rome were crucified and they were hung outside the city showing this is what happens when you mess with Rome. He was scorned and humiliated. He was crushed and he died. But when you look at Jesus, you see that his humiliation didn't start a war. It ended one. His death was, in fact, the death of death. His defeat was the defeat of sin, our greatest enemy. And although we were enemies of this king, this king offers his kindness and his mercy and his redemption freely to rebels scorners, mockers like you and me. And it's every, every morning, this king offers this. And although we were enemies of this king, this kindness of King Jesus, his offer of welcome into the family, of entrance into a new kind of kingdom, of forgiveness, of peace, of wholeness is offered and received just by faith. 
It wasn't because of the loyalty of our fathers. It wasn't because of our spiritual lineage or our heritage. It is simply by sheer grace, and we receive it by faith. That, that moves me as I read the story that way. Does that move you? If there is an all-creator God, if there is an all-knowing God, if there is a good God, then to be against him, in my opinion, would be the most terrifying thing. Wouldn't it? It's like if, you want, if you want to be afraid of something, be afraid of, of him, God. He created everything. He just, death, sickness, it's, it's all subject to him. And if you think this all-creator, all-powerful, all-knowing God not only tolerates you, yeah, <laughs> but loves you, and is not only like, all right, go ahead and, and try to do some things and just learn on your own. But he said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do good to you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be for you. Then you understand how the scriptures say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If the ultimate thing to be feared of is with you, what can death do to me? What can hurtful words do to me? What can darkness do to me? Nothing can separate me from this God. It's not even about me. Because he grabbed onto me. It's not because of my grasp on him. Man, that's amazing. <sighs> Faith is knowing that, that God, that Jesus is good and what he does is good. And he has decided to do good to us because of Christ. So we can trust in his goodness. We can trust that he is with us. We can trust that he is for us because of Jesus and what he has done. Amen? So may we be courageous, not because we have the strength to muster up in ourselves, not because we're foolish, right? We had that friend growing up that just did the stupidest stuff. He wasn't courageous. He was just dumb. <laughs> I was one of those. <laughs> we can be courageous. We can... Be strong in the face of fear and opposition because we know who's with us and we know what he's done and we know what he's about. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for Samuel, for the many ways in which this, this story of Saul and Samuel and David shows us a little bit of, of who you are in your kingdom. It's not simply about the history of your people, it helped us in a way to understand what is it like to be living in the kingdom of Jesus? What is it like to have a king that is kind and loving? And Lord, I think also in this story, we, we see a warning of rejecting the kindness of kings. And I pray that we wouldn't treat this kindness lightly, but that as it is intended to do, that the kindness of our king would lead us to love and joy and repentance and looking more and more like Jesus. Lord, you, you came and lived the life that we, we, we just couldn't live. 
you lived the perfect life and, and it was the plan of the Father to, to put you to shame, to crush you for our sins. So when you went to the cross, you were like a lamb led to the slaughter. You were silent as they were spitting on you and mocking you and whipping you and beating you. And you did this that we might be restored and reconciled to a good and loving God. A God that is so good that he cannot tolerate evil in his presence. And yet you've welcomed us because of what Jesus has done. He's given us his very own righteousness so that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We can with confidence know that if you are for us, who can be against us? We can with confidence trust that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So help us, Father, to trust you and to believe you. We do believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, help us this week to encourage our brothers and sisters. Help us to experience the freedom and the joy of knowing that you're with us. You're not leaving us. Sin doesn't separate us from you. And you invite us continually to come into your presence and to enjoy you. Enjoy your heart for us. Enjoy your love for us. Enjoy the graciousness of God in Christ. Father, would we be a church that is continually marked by this grace of Jesus, that others who are hurting and suffering would experience comfort and hope and help in the kind of community of grace that you want to form in us. So we give you the glory as you work. Thank you for your work of grace in us. You've saved us. You've, you're, you've formed us. You're continually forming us. You're transforming us in this church. And we praise you for the work that you've done. We look forward to the work that you will do and help us as this happens to respond as we ought to in joyful thanksgiving and gratitude. We love you, Jesus. May we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.